This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello there and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal land at the Aora Nation. And today, in a week packed with foreign policy news, some of it fairly alarming, I must say, we're going to be joined by Peter Harcher, who's the political and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And PK, with a, with a global focus to the news this week and with the PM away on holidays, it's really been Foreign Minister Penny Wong stepping into the frame with a message to China as it muscled up with the show of military force around Taiwan in response primarily, or, or was it, to the US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit. What is most critical at the moment is uh, that the temperature is lo- lowered and calm is restored when it comes to cross-strait cross tensions. Uh, Australia continues to urge restraint. Australia continues to urge de-escalation. And uh, this is not something that solely Australia is calling for. The whole region is concerned about the current um, uh, situation. The whole region uh, is calling for stability to be restored. Foreign Minister Penny Wong with a message from the region for China calling on the superpower to de-escalate. She was, when she made those comments, PK, she was standing alongside the US Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, and her Japanese counterpart as well. So the weight of the comments was underlined. China wasn't happy, accusing her of, of finger-pointing. But I think as much as the Chinese Foreign Affairs spokesperson was offended by our Foreign Minister criticising China's live-fire exercise around Taiwan, China would have been... At least as uneasy you would think about comments from Peter Dutton. I guess that is, of course, if a superpower cares much at all about comments from the Australian opposition, I'm not sure. Yeah, Peter Dutton, Fran, has been really interesting on this this week and uh, there's been a few shifts here. There's been a very obvious difference in tone for some time. This certainly predates this latest escalation. Uh, this this goes right back to Peter Dutton in government and as Defence Minister and the rhetoric he used in relation to China was consistently strident and uh, some would argue inflammatory. Uh, Kevin Rudd told me on RM Breakfast, Harry Chested, that That's the kind of language we've seen. Now, when you look at the opposition's response compared to the government's when it comes to both the Pelosi visit and China's over-the-top response, which it was, and it's, you know, live military drills in response to a visit from the House Speaker, there was a lot of bipartisanship in in terms of the response there that they all supported the one China policy, that they wanted sort of a, a decrease in the sort of temperature here, all of that. But... Peter Dutton went a bit further. He backed US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, which went much further than Penny Wong had gone, but also much further than his own colleagues had gone. Everyone else was sort of 
keeping out of that one, not condemning the visit, absolutely not, but certainly not backing it because it was seen as as potentially not not making things better given we want the status quo to stay, which is no war, if I can be blunt, everyone keeping cool heads. And these, these views were kind of seen as quite unusual given Peter Dutton is the opposition leader and those on his front bench were saying something a little bit different. Here's Peter Dutton earlier in the week. And if we want to be frank and honest, uh, then that's better than a model of appeasement. And I've always believed that the only way that we can maintain peace in our region uh, is if we call out bullying behaviour and bad practice. Uh, And if we do that, we can have a prevailing peace and we can have a normalised relationship with China. And that's uh, incredibly important. That was opposition leader Peter Dutton. Words are bullets in diplomacy, and Peter Dutton has fired off a few rounds this week, Fran. Actually, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. I interviewed him, and I know you, you listen because I love that about you. It's so, it's so cool that you're a listener. <laughs> I'm listening, um, PK, always. You, lis- you listen to RM Breakfast, the show you hosted for 17 years. It's a beautiful thing. And he, don't you think he pulled some of that back? He said that Penny Wong had done the right thing. He tried to own it, though, said it was his government's language that now they're adopting. But actually, exactly. it was quite a switch, though, from what he was saying just a couple of days before. Well, it was, I think, a notable switch in tone, and I'll come to that in a moment. But yes, he did. He did sort of slip in there that he feels that the comments from the government today and from the US are, you know, vindication of his government's rhetoric when, when he was Defence Minister. And he's pleased to see that the Albanese government is now off the back of the same intelligence briefings, basically echoing the rhetoric of the former coalition government. So he slipped that in there. It is interesting that he went in so hard this week, PK, not in the sense that to do anything less would be a a switch from his tone and approach when he was defence minister in government, but post-election, off the back of the Liberal Party's analysis of their shellacking at the polls, some of his colleagues in the Liberal Party have been privately urging, as I understand it, the opposition leader to tone down the rhetoric on China, believing it was perhaps in part responsible for the swing against the Liberals in some seats, seats like Chisholm in Melbourne or Benelong in Sydney. We'll talk about more about that with Peter Harcher. But it is interesting that that message was coming out through one channel. At the same time, there was Peter Dutton earlier in the week speaking, as we heard him there, speaking about appeasement, speaking about bullying, speaking about standing up to bullies. And then in the interview with you this morning, just winding it back a bit and, and congratulating the government and basically sort of indicating that the opposition and the government are in the same groove on China now. That's where we're at. As I say, we'll talk about it more with Peter because there is other political news swirling around this week. The Job Summit, PK, for instance, the government's still working out the guest list, but let it be known that it invited the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, along. Guess what? Peter Dutton doesn't want to go. I I thought, am I correct in remembering that the shadow treasurer, Angus Taylor, had actually asked for a seat at the summit table a few weeks ago, PK? What's going on? What's going on is a new opposition that, after being in government for a long time, is really a little lost. The failure to be on the same page on some of this is quite breathtaking. Just a couple of calls would solve it. Just a WhatsApp group, like just, you know, I'm going to say this. (laughs) WhatsApp group, there's a good idea. But one that works, uh, (laughs) it was bizarre. Yes, we've got a shadow treasurer saying, I want a seat at the table. Then Susan Lay, who's the deputy leader. So actually Peter Dutton's backed in her view, saying it's a stunt. Peter Dutton says it's a stunt too. I quizzed him on it on RM Breakfast too. He says, oh, I was giving this late um, invitation. That was a stunt. Basically so, dismissing the whole thing as a wish list from the ACTU. Yeah, and a radical, radical wish list. Now, on that, on some of those big, big ideas that, that 
the ACTU has put forward, a bit of a rejection of a lot of those from the government too. So let's just park that in a moment. But that's interesting uh, on, an, on another level because the government's going to be quite careful about the way it handles some of those ideas that are going to be considered quite radical, especially business mm. being so opposed to them. But at the same time, we've got the leader of the Nationals, David Littleproud, taking the invitation, wanting a rural Australia, he says, re- re- rural and regional Australia to have a seat at the table and asserting his nationalness, <laughs> nationalsness and difference from the Liberal Party. I think that's quite interesting too. Of course, Peter Dutton's trying to downplay all of that, like, you know, that they can do what they want and I, I just don't believe in this stunt. They're just oh, falling all over themselves, aren't they, trying to I make don't a think political they're handling point this but well. getting a bit lost in it. They're not handling it well. There was an interesting line from Jim Chalmers, who I also spoke to. I'm spooking all the interviews, but they said some really interesting things today, I thought. It was a good political line from from Jim Chalmers. He said, when you hear the new opposition leader, it's like a Tony Abbott time warp, (laughs) i.e. saying no, no, no to things, and he's throwing his toys out the cot. Now, these are pretty potent political lines as attacks against Peter Dutton. I don't know. It's early days. Does it really matter whether Peter Dutton takes a seat at a summit at the start of a new government? Probably, you know, not front of mind for voters at the next election, for sure. But I think the failure to be on the same page on some of these issues is going to be a problem for the coalition that need to get their house in order. Yeah, I mean, I actually think the strategic mistake was asking for a seat at the table because once they're at that table, there wouldn't be that much place for them in a sense. So maybe they shouldn't have made that sort of call and then they wouldn't have been in this situation. But look, one other thing to this week, PK, you talked about the uh, radical economic agenda, reform agenda put forward by the ACTU. Part of that was a call for the government to drop the stage three tax cuts. Now, these are the tax cuts that have been legislated. Remember that. They're worth something like $184 billion over seven years, according to the Parliamentary Budget Office. So they're, you know, they're big money, almost $20 20 billion a year in the first year. The bulk of that going to people earning over $120,000. So they're skewed up, not down. Now we've got the Greens and the ACTU calling for them to be cut. Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer on your show and beyond, saying, well, they're legislated. We're not thinking about that. That's not not in our thinking at the moment. The only tax cuts we're going to do are to the... um, multinationals as promised in the election. But, you know, we've seen this before, haven't we? This is the way change happens, is that you get a growing and broad coalition of support. We're not there yet. The Greens and the ACTU certainly don't represent a broad coalition of support. But if inflation stays high, there's a trillion dollars of debt, the budget is really constrained. If Australians can be persuaded that there is a much better way to spend $184 billion over seven years, for instance, on hospitals or aged care or free TAFE or more rental support, whatever it is, you know, then we we might see something happening on that front. But for now, it's not there and we will hear these calls and they will get louder from the ACT and the Greens. But right now, I think there's no way the government would go anywhere near to backing down on a promise, um, on a legislated tax cut that it's already promised. As happens when you've been a political journalist for a long time, and both you and I have been lifelong, right, you read the tea leaves a bit bit of tea leaf reading happens. And I heard Jim Chalmers' response. I was listening extremely Mm. carefully to his response. And yes, he says, uh, they're legislated, the usual lines. I kept pressing him, though, because I do think there are some, even in the Labor Party, who think, can we really afford this? Is this really, you know, what the community wants, given it hasn't even started yet? And I said, do you welcome a conversation on it? You know, this broad consensus growing. And he didn't 
rule out the ACTU coming with these proposals, this proposal particularly, and having a conversation around it, even though he, he did not announce government shifting its policy, to be super clear. Am I reading too much into it, Fran? Is well, there some movement? Well, I don't think there is yet. I mean, they're not due to come into 2024, so there's time on the government's hand. Jim Chalmers is focused on the task at hand, which apart from the job summit in September is for him the budget in October. He's got to get that put away. That will make the case of things are tough, things are tight. We've got this much debt, this much deficit. There's limits on what we can do. And, and I think that will be part of that story. The inflation is going to keep rising for another year and a half or so, at least. People are going to feel the pinch. So it's really waiting to see the public mood, really. And then, as I say, if that coalition calling for an end to those tax cuts or a re-manifesting of those tax cuts, you know, a reorienting of them, perhaps targeting them to the lower paid. I doubt personally, as you say, we both watch politics a lot. I doubt that the stage three tax cuts will ever be scrapped altogether, but I can see that they could be refashioned, if you like, as I say, towards maybe spending less on them and redirecting some of that money to something that is really quite obvious for the people to see, for the public to see, like free TAFE or more skills or better aged care. But I do think there will be some element of stage three tax cuts that will be perhaps not skewed so much towards the top end. I think that's the sort of change we might see, but a long way to go yet. A long way to go. And I just want to be quite clear. Jim Chalmers was clear that he, he was going to stick to that promise. He didn't say he was going to reverse the idea, but just the allowing a conversation to go on. Not that he has the right to stop a conversation anyway, but the, right. the way that this is now growing in momentum, perhaps that there is a real questioning of whether this is the right thing right now. Look, uh, the biggest themes this week were the ones we started on, Fran, China and the way that we are responding both as a country, but really geopolitically, more globally, what this means for us right now at this time. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. (laughs) Peter Harcher, political and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Welcome back to the party room. Thanks, Patricia. Always fun to be with you. And what a week to join us, Peter. There's a lot going on in your patch, so um, let's get into it. We've talked a little bit about it already, but we all watched with some trepidation, I think it's fair to say, as China launched those four days straight of military exercises surrounding Taiwan. Things have even escalated since then, certainly rhetorically. China's announced military drills will continue without an end date, openly speaking of Chinese forces preparing for a joint encirclement of Taiwan. What message is China trying to send here? Peter, what's going on? Yes, it's a very loud and expensive message, isn't it, Fran? Mm. And I think there are, it operates on several levels for them. Remember that even though China is an autocracy and Xi Jinping a dictator, that they still have politics and he still has politics and he's played politics very hard and very ruthlessly uh, in China. And we, we've all been told many times, and it's a shorthand, the Western media shorthand is that Xi Jinping is ruler for life. And even if that turns out to be the case, nonetheless, he has to come back to the party every five years to get another five-year term approved. Now, nobody was saying or is saying that his, his grip on power was about to slip and he was going to be ditched. But in October or November, they're holding the 20th Party Congress. This is the once-in-five-year event where he has to ask for another term. So he's got to uh, campaign for that. Uh, And that's exactly what this is. This is part of his campaign where he's demonstrating that China 
will not receive any insult or humiliation from the US in the form of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, that he will satisfy the nationalists in his party with a show of force, that he will gratify the People's Liberation Army and the generals who make up a very important part of his constituency, his power constituency in Beijing. So th these are all very important internal signals that he's been sending. Just as Nancy Pelosi is facing re-election and has to feed her domestic constituency in America in three months from now, Xi Jinping around the same time has to, has to appeal <laughs> for his own five-year term renewal. So that's critical. That is, without that, he could have afforded to do just nothing, you know, just say, oh, this is a, a sad old woman in a lame duck, you know, Speaker of the House, and isn't this pathetic? But he was campaigning, and that was the primary message. And then, of course, there are messages to the rest of the world and to Taiwan. Yeah, sure. But so are you saying, though, that this show of strength or aggression towards Taiwan would have happened anyway as he tried to sort of impress 1.4 billion Chinese ahead of the People's Congress, or that the Pelosi thing was the spark for it, that it wouldn't have happened without that? What's the thinking? The thinking is that this is a wonderful opportunity mm. for me to deliver a message. What a campaign opportunity Nancy Pelosi is giving me to make these points to my uh, d domestic constituency. Remember, uh, In China's that case, was having... it a mistake? Was it, was it a mistake then? Yeah, because that's uh, what Kevin Rudd says. Well, I don't think, I don't think so um, because, and I've, I've been talking to a range of Sinologists and people who are expert on China, Chinese politics, and uh, I, I don't think it was a mistake because remember that the Chinese population is not having the happiest time ever. Their economy has stalled, and that's been the Chinese Communist Party's greatest claim to legitimacy. The, the economy is now stalled. There's a real estate crisis. Values are collapsing. There's a mortgage strike launched by hundreds of thousands of Chinese mortgage holders who've paid for properties they're never going to receive because there's a liquidity crisis in the industry and apartments being paid for aren't getting built. People are still frustrated in their COVID lockdowns. There's a lot of discontent. So to be able to roll out uh, this big display of great Chinese power to defy the Americans, to uh, frighten the Taiwanese, is gratifying to the nationalists in his, in his party, to the generals, and to distract and deflect from all the local problems that so many Chinese are feeling right now. Taiwan has hit back, announcing it will launch its own live fire military drills in retaliation. And as Penny Wong and others have noted, and it's true, there's no room for error and miscalculation. This is really serious stuff, right? And we've, it's never been more risky than it is at this moment. Is that the fear? Not intentional hostilities at this stage, although clearly that's on the cards after we heard from the, the ambassador, but accidental miscalculation? Yes, accidental miscalculation is obviously a real live and immediate risk because in that feverish sort of environment, neither side would want to back down, but especially the Chinese side uh, would want to back down when they're in the middle of this display designed to impress at home and to intimidate abroad. It's really the longer term danger. So the Chinese have made a point, the Chinese Communist Party have made a point of cutting off eight different dialogue channels with the US in retaliation for the Pelosi visit this week, including several military channels. But as the US Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, said to me two days ago when I interviewed her, she said, look, we have other channels where we can speak to the Chinese military. There are back channels uh, to contain incidents that might occur. So, you know, the accidental incident that escalates can be managed. The real problem is that this is a fundamental clash of interests and intentions. 
the existence of Taiwan as a Chinese democracy, flourishing, successfully self-ruling, with all these liberties and freedoms and economically prosperous, even as China itself has stalled, this is a daily affront to the legitimacy and the standing of the Chinese Communist Party. It's a historical mission of the party to wipe it out and destroy it. In demonstrating this increased level of military capability and political rhetoric and determination, Xi Jinping is, is moving closer to the day when they seize it by force. That is the real, and it seems, uh, inevitable course of events that's going to happen here. And the question is, really only a, a two questions. When? And it's not this week, gratefully, because Xi Jinping is not ready, China is not ready, and when it does act, it'll be at its own timing and initiative. It won't be in response to someone else. And the second question is, what does the rest of the world do? They're the, they're mm. the questions. But I think we see now that that is an inevitable course um, that many knowledgeable uh, sinologists and China experts have been telling us is going to happen for years now. And I think we can now see it coming closer to fruition. Now, the Chinese are saying it's going to happen. I mean, the ambassador was making, you know, no secret of it at the press club and other comments from Chinese foreign policy heads this week talking about, you know, the joint encirclement, preparing for joint encirclement. So there is no, there's no ifs or buts about it. But what about the timeline and what's the US thinking or anticipation of that timeline? Because people have been thinking, you know, at least two years. Has that changed now, given what we've seen this week? The only formal deadline that uh, Xi Jinping has announced or imposed is 2049, which will be uh, a century of, since the creation of the People's Republic of China for the reunification so-called with Taiwan. So that's the only formal one. Within that, there is obviously plenty of room for manoeuvre. 2027 is a, a year that carries some weight and that's been speculated as, uh, in fact, the former head of the US Indo-Pacific Command has said that he thinks that the, the risk is that the military seizure of Taiwan will occur within those next five, six years. But really, Xi Jinping said, even before he was made president of China, but when he'd just been anointed as the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, his very first speech, he said, I will put China in a position to take the initiative and to assert dominance. Take the initiative and assert dominance. These are words that, and he's repeated them since in major speeches, words that the rest of the world has, you know, pretended politely not to notice because it didn't suit us to notice. That's a pretty clear-cut formula. And he doesn't say, you know, to take the initiative and assert dominance in Asia or, you know, over Taiwan. He says it meaning it universally. We're talking about a, a bloke who's determined to be the regional hegemon but also to be the dominant global ruler. This is, this is the megalomania of the autocrat that we are talking about. Now, to take the initiative in the case of Taiwan wouldn't be to set out a, a timeline and then to act. It would be to do what he did in the case of Hong Kong. Now, remember, this is a bloke who can use very incremental and opportunistic tactics, as he did in the South China Sea, where he just expanded gradually, mm. you know, salami slicing, to take one reef, one island, one bit of land, uh, one more piece of territory, until finally he had the entire thing. Uh, but he's also capable of moving very quickly and seizing opportunities as they present, as he did in Hong Kong, uh, at a time when nobody was expecting it. They asserted the national security law over Hong Kong and crushed all of Hong Kong's liberties, and that whatever flame of, uh, of freedom was flickering is now fully extinguished. So we can expect, I think, that he will use the same sort of surprise tactics and exercise it, exercise, take the initiative when nobody is expecting it.
Peter, we touched on this before in our own chat that we start the podcast with, and this is the way that this has been handled domestically in terms of both the federal government, the new Albanese government, but also opposition leader Peter Dutton's views. And they appear to differ on the government's views and the public position on particularly Nancy Pelosi's visit. He, he openly backed her trip. He then joined me on RM Breakfast, we're recording this on a Thursday, and acknowledged that calling Taiwan independent was a misspeak this week. He also said that everything his government said on China is in, in the past was vindicated because Penny Wong is using the same rhetoric. What's going on here? Is he kind of pairing it back a bit? Well, I think two things. He First, he's tempted to uh, claim vindication in his warnings about China's warlike stance. Uh, and in that, you know, of course, um, he's right. I, I don't think anything he said about China's intentions was ever wrong. The question was whether it was wise to, sit, to say it openly as a political leader. But the other, the other thing is, yes, I, I think he is trying to manage himself, himself down because the danger and the reality of uh, China's aggression is now undeniable and on raw display. And I don't think he wants to be accused of, of inflaming it any more than it already has been inflamed. Mm. And what about the China-Australia relationship going forward? You know, in the wake of the election of the Albanese government, there were overtures. Penny Wong met her counterpart. Richard Miles met his. That would seem to be a sort of a, a, a break in the, um, in the freeze. But now we've got the, um, the ambassador, the Chinese ambassador at the press club, you know, allegedly offering an opportunity to reset relations with China. But there were an awful lot of demands and conditions around that reset this week, Peter, which would have been impossible for an Australian government to meet. Where does all this leave Australian-China relations and particularly the economic relationship? Yes, it was funny, wasn't it? it uh, I think the Chinese ambassador thought he was waging a charm offensive, but to Australian ears <laughs> not, just not ends so up as being as... Yeah, exactly. There's no charm whatsoever. Ends up sounding like a bunch of threats and demands. In their fondest fantasy, Beijing would like Australia to, to just roll over and play dead, not support Taiwan, not support the US. And the ambassador was essentially saying to Australia, look, we're talking to each other now, but if you want anything more, you're going to have to make some concessions. You're going to have to acknowledge that we are greater and we are more powerful than you. And that's just not realistic. That cannot and will not happen. And I think shows that Beijing hasn't learned much about how to deal with Australia and how to deal with democracies generally. I mean, that's untenable for a democratic country uh, to respond to that sort of a demand or threat. So the other angle here is, of course, our own region and how this is playing out in our own region. And we've been talking about this now for many months. But I want to go to the Pacific, where the Albanese government is also navigating the influence of China. Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasa Sagavare has said he wants to delay the election until after the Solomons host the Pacific Games in November 2023. That's against the wishes of some opposition MPs. Now, Australia offered the Solomons $17 million in funds for the Pacific Games. I spoke to Solomon's opposition MP, Peter Kenny-Loria Jr. on RM Breakfast on Wednesday, and he's calling for the Australian government to help fund the election as well. Here he is. But at the same time, I would like to think as well that priority should also be with um, elections as part of a democratic country's um, cornerstone in terms of uh, who we are as a nation. And I would like to see as well support in that particular area as well, because we've heard in the past 
that indeed uh, money is one of the big issues that we can't hold um, uh, elections as well next year. And that's Solomon Islands opposition MP Peter Kenilaria Jr. Now, I also spoke to the Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy, this week on breakfast, and he said the Solomon Islands government would have to ask for election funding directly before anything could be offered. Does Prime Minister Sagavare have Australia over a barrel here, Peter? Yes, he absolutely does. All the initiative is with him. The decisions are his. Um, This is unfolding exactly as the Solomon's opposition predicted, you know, a year ago that he would use the games as an opportunity to play essentially um, autocratic rule and that the Chinese uh, government would support that. So there's nothing really that Australia can do in the face uh, of Sogavare's determination to... I mean, he does control the parliament, he can change the constitution, he has the numbers, he can postpone the election, uh, he can turn now to China for its assistance if there's any uh, protests or demonstrations, and there's nothing Australia can do about that. No, but if we're funding a games ahead of an election, because that seems to be the equation being offered by the Prime Minister, it seems dubious, doesn't it? Dubious priorities. On our part. Yeah, it does. I mean, he wants the Games as his pretext to uh, continue to extend his term and impose authoritarian rule. So Australia doesn't have to participate in that and probably shouldn't. The Chinese government has supplied vast funding, including building the entire stadium for them in that cause. There are other needs in the Solomons that the Australian government should be able to uh, help pay for, including the election, absolutely. But mm-hmm. the games themselves are being used by Sogavare as his opportunity to cement authoritarian rule. And to grandstand. Peter, just before I let you go, can we just talk briefly about the circus that is the New South Wales Parliament at the moment? The Premier there, Dominic Perrottet, looked like a pretty safe pair of hands as Premier not that long ago. Now it seems everything around him is is crumbling and he just cannot control the chaos that unfolds. As you look on... Do you see a lesson in this for a federal government? Yes, I do. I mean, the essence of this was a jobs for the boys set up uh, where the government was lining up Barilaro to give him a cushy overseas job well paid to get him out of parliament. And in the olden days, um, as in very recently, they could have got, gotten away with that. It was pretty standard stuff. The re- response and the consequences of the Barilaro affair shows that the electorate is sick of it and will not tolerate it anymore. Uh, just as we saw at the federal level, the remarkable upsurge of national uh, demand, really, for a federal ICAC or a national anti-corruption commission. And that was a contributor to the Morrison government losing power, the fact that it wasn't prepared to negotiate to, to do so. So this is an object lesson now to the Albanese government, to governments everywhere in Australia. The old ways, pork barrelling, corruption, whether it's soft or hard corruption, jobs for the boys. This is a thing of the past. People are demanding better. They certainly are. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Always a pleasure. We'll move to questions without notice. we give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And the bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. And this question comes from Zoe, who writes... 
noting all the concern about the appointment of John Barillaro, and that's in New South Wales politics for those who somehow missed it, why have we not seen such concern before? For example, when Joe Hockey was appointed ambassador to the United States, has transparency increased? Such a good question. Well, yeah, it is. And we've sort of talked about this a little, haven't we? Has transparency increased? Yes, probably. Are we more attuned to integrity of government? Yes, we are. But at the same time, I think there was something else going on here. I mean, I don't think personally that politicians, our very best of them, some of them with a world of experience, should be ruled out altogether of ever representing Australia again in public life. I mean, I think that would be a waste. I think, you know, Robert Hill representing Australia uh, at the UN was not a bad thing, or Arthur Sinodinus as US ambassador is not a bad thing, for instance. It's not necessarily jobs for the boys and the girls. That's the entire story. But there was a lot else happening here, wasn't there, with the Barilaro thing in New South Wales. If you haven't been following it, Barilaro was the state National Party leader. He was the deputy. He left. Very controversial figure. And very soon after he left, it became clear he'd put up his hand for this trade commissioner's job and then he got it. Now, there was a lot of noise around this job then. The way it was being appointed had been changed so that ministers got to do it solely. Then we found out there had already been a woman from the public sector who'd been through the whole interview process process and had been selected and signed off on and thought she had the job and was getting ready to move a family there. And that got scrapped and a new process got put in place, which allowed John Barillaro to be chosen. And there's all sorts of other elements that have come out through this too. So I think it was all that sort of noise and disquiet and controversy, to be frank, around this appointment that has blown it up rather than just the fact that you can never appoint a politician. That's, that's what I think is different here. Yeah, and and he keeps saying that he applied in sort of the official public service way rather than it just being a direct appointment that was transparently appointed. So that there's sort of the theatre around uh, a sort of fair and robust application process, which didn't feel very fair and robust to the woman who was offered the job, right? This, this, exactly. is, the, this is the issue. But having said that, I think that last part of your question is actually really interesting, which is, has transparency increased? And looking at those appointments of these political figures in the past, I think there is going to be perhaps a different standard in the wake of this, though. And it's a really interesting conundrum for this new federal um, Labor government. How do they now, given public sentiment, which matters enormously, can they really appoint someone like Christina Keneally, who missed Mm -hmm. out on her seat, someone like her, just as an example, to a key posting? I think it would be actually really difficult now because there is a standard that's being set through watching this. And and I do the mother-in-law test. I spoke to my mother-in-law who lives in Sydney who was appalled that this poor woman who's worked hard her whole life would be overlooked like this for this career politician. I reckon community sentiment, you know, my mother-in-law is a very big swinging voter. You, you talk to people like that, there's a huge community sentiment, which is politicians shouldn't just get the jobs that are richly remunerated over people who work hard. There should be a lot of transparency around all these appointments. These are, you know, these are plum jobs. There should be equal equal opportunity to to do some of this work in this country. You look at gender, all of these issues. We need to have a really transparent system, I reckon. That's it for the podcast this week. Now, uh, Fran, uh, we haven't mentioned it till now, but, you know, you're not going to dump the party room now that you've got Frankly, are you? 
Oh, no, PK, this will be my political trifle on the side. No, not at all. No, it's, um, yeah, I've got a new gig, which I'm very excited about. It's a Friday night TV chat show, and it will be talking to a whole lot of fabulous, fantastic, fascinating, interesting people who aren't politicians. It'll be a politician-free zone, and I'm really excited about it. And I'll get all my political diet from the Party Room podcast. I'm not giving that away because I love it. We've been doing it for so long now, PK. How could I live I without it? I know. Um, But this is a whole new thing on a Friday night, which I hope you'll all tune into and have fun with. Perfect way to kick back on a Friday night. I think it is too, and I'll be watching for sure. That's pretty much when I'm um, on the couch, Fran, so it's the perfect time for me. And and did you come up with the name Frankly yourself? It's pretty good. I did. I think it's really good, and I just wanted to mention it. She's going to be Frank here as well, not quite Frankly, <laughs> just Frank. Keep your views coming through. Send us questions to the party room at abc.net.au. Rate and review. Just keep doing it all. And we'll be back next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.